I think we can uh, concur that the magnitude of our salvation is such that we can never exhaust our thanks to him. We consider what he has done for us eternally. Our thanksgiving will flow up to him forever and ever and ever. We of all people uh, in the world, and particularly in the United States, celebrates Thanksgiving, have reason to thank God. Because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and therefore we have a profound reason to thank him. If you'll open your copy of the scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, I'd like for you to uh, focus your attention when you reach that spot in the Bible, verse 23. Verse 23. These are um, not unfamiliar words to uh, seasoned saints, but I am going to read them in your hearing um, to refresh your mind and allow the Holy Spirit, even in the reading of his word, to illumine it for a greater understanding. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are sick and weak, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. I've entitled this, as you already know, No Ordinary Meal. <laughs> I think you already got that after hearing that read, right? There's no ordinary meal. It's not a happy meal at McDonald's. <laughs> this is a meal you approach with profound soberness. The depth, the gravity of this meal is one that will get your attention so that when you partake of it, you recognize you're not dealing with the routine. You're not dealing with the everyday. You're dealing with that which is sacred high and relates to none other than our Lord God Almighty. So it's no ordinary meal. Um, this really comes out of a situation in Corinth. You may recall that the Corinthian church was a problematic church. It was a fact, it was a pastorally challenging congregation. They had many spiritual problems. Among these were, they were enamored with worldly wisdom. They divided themselves into cliques regarding spiritual leaders. I'm of Peter, I'm Paul, I'm Apollos, and I'm of Christ. They um, permitted open sexual immorality. It was not disciplined as it should have been by the church. 
They wanted the showy gifts, particularly the gift of tongues. They, they wanted that because that put the spotlight on them. They were an immature fellowship. They were loveless in the manner in which they used their spiritual gifts, just loveless all the way around. Some in their ranks even denied the resurrection of the dead. The problem addressed here in our text from the pen of the Apostle Paul was their selfishness toward their fellow believers with respect to the Lord's table. They commemorated the greatest act of unselfishness in human history, Jesus' um, sacrifice for sinners by indulging in selfish acts toward others at the Lord's table and the love feast that was connected with it. In addressing their mockery of the Lord's Supper, Paul teaches them, and he teaches us by extension, that we must not take communion lightly. We must engage in this ordinance, this decree that has come to the church by Jesus Christ with utter seriousness. As the text unfolds, we'll see the gravity of this, this ordinance, this ceremony that we are commanded to keep. We'll see, as I've already said, it's no ordinary meal. It's no ordinary meal because the meal commemorates an extraordinary event. And Paul launches into that in the reciting of what he had already told the Corinthians when he was with them. And now he is going to repeat it and highlight the reality of what Jesus Christ did when he was betrayed that night. Verse 23, he was betrayed. He took bread. That night, he celebrated the Passover with the disciples. It's connected with what he would institute later, known as what we're going do, doing today, the Lord's Supper. That night, he was betrayed. He was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. As you recall, he was a false disciple. He was numbered among the 12. But he agreed to be hired by the religious leaders of Israel to betray none other than the Son of God. While Judas and his confederates were plotting the murder of the Lord of glory, our Lord was simultaneously teaching the disciples that his death would be the means of salvation for all who would believe in him. While our Lord's enemies were doing Satan's bidding, our Savior was following the divine plan. Jesus' enemies meant his death for evil, but God meant it for good. But isn't that just like God? He can make the wrath of men praise him. He can turn their plans upside down, and he can get glory out of what they mean for the inglory of God, Christ, and his people. And when he had given thanks, verse 24 tells us, significant words, Jesus gave thanks. Uh, when we give thanks to God, we do it for our daily bread, or should. And Jesus gave thanks for what the bread and drink symbolized. This was no ordinary meal. It was a meal of eternal significance. Here is the significance. You'll notice in the text, he sa it says he broke it. By the way, let me let you know, broke it is not in the best Greek manuscripts. 
Uh, his first, certainly his body wasn't broken, and not a bone of it was broken, as Scripture teaches, and ex- it was expressed there in John's Gospel. But it says here in this verse, verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. The bread that Jesus was holding there before his 12, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Uh, That verb is means to signify. It means to stand for. It means to represent. And he said those two wonderful monumental words, for you. He gave his body for you, for us. Jesus became incarnate. That is, he became a man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says he took flesh and blood. He took a body to be a sacrifice for us. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 lets us know sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. This was the ultimate purpose of the incarnation. The reason Jesus came at Christmas time as we celebrate it and as we will. The reason he was born of the Virgin Mary. The reason he took on human flesh. The reason he became a human being was to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Jesus says, you need to do this. Do this. Eat this bread. There in verse 24, which is a command. Taking the Lord's Supper then is is not an option for Christians. It's an imperative. Not taking it is disobedience. It is sin against Christ. This is no ordinary meal. We've been commanded to do this. And why are we to do it? It says in the text, in remembrance of me, at the bottom of verse 25, or verse 24, in remembrance of me. We do not simply recall historical facts. We know he died on a cross at Calvary. We sang about that a few moments ago, right? What we do, we remember spiritual realities. We remember why he died for our sins. We remember how he died willingly. We remember that he loved us and gave himself up for us. Just like Paul said in Galatians 2.20 about himself, that applies to every child of God. He loved you. When you think about what he did on the cross, remember he did it because he loved you. Applies to you. Sometimes I think people can get... um, disconcerted with life and they they wonder about their circumstance and uh, they even begin to question whether God loves them. Let me tell you, yes, he does. He demonstrated that clearly on the cross, right? Uh, There there is no greater expression of divine love than that Christ died for you. He gave himself up willingly for you. We remember that because he died, he turned away divine wrath from us. You do recall that we're, we're like uh, people who have a spiritual bullseye on them. The, we were divine targets for divine wrath. We were children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. But what Jesus did, he took that wrath. He, he took the arrows. He took all of that that should have been on us, and he turned it away. And then we remember that the fruit of his death is eternal life. 
we have. That's what we remember. That's what we do when we take the elements. Those things ought to be in our mind, and we ought to have lofty thoughts about God. We ought to have wonderful thoughts about Christ. We ought to, in our hearts, praise him. We ought to get distracted about this thing and that thing, about what's going to happen Monday. Forget about Monday. Enjoy, bless, and honor God right now, right? Focus on him. This is no ordinary meal. You, you want to think about that when you partake of the elements. Verse 25. It um, says, in the same way he took the cup after supper. Let me explain. Supper here is not the Lord's Supper. The supper here is Passover. You recall Passover was God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. When the Passover meal was over, Jesus took the cup. It's the third cup of the Passover meal, which represented the lamb's blood that was smeared on the doorpost of the Jewish dwellings the night of the Passover in Egypt. And when the death angel came into Egypt, he would look, as it were, to see the blood of the lamb that was smeared on the lintel and the doorpost. And when he saw the blood, he passed over that home. But the Passover, the cup, its contents, came to represent the one to whom the lambs pointed. The Passover lambs slain even in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was celebrating this with his disciples, the lambs were being slain. But all those lambs in their past history, up to that very moment, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, really pointed to the one ultimate lamb, the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood would protect us, whose death would save us. We see in the cup, you'll notice, the new covenant in my blood. How is it the new covenant in Jesus' blood? I'm going to tell you why it's new. It's new in that it is the saving covenant to which all the Old Testament shadows pointed. All in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, all of that was pointing to this one. The new deliverance is from sin to salvation. In Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We see the wonderful words of our Lord Jesus instituting the table there in Luke's gospel. He is with them there. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten and saying, now get these words. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see those words poured out for you. This is another indication of the substitutionary death of Christ. He poured out his life. His blood was shed for you. He substituted for you. His death was payment for our sins. Because of his death, we have forgiveness of our sins. 
I said last Sunday, all the people who populate heaven are forgiven people. We're forgiven not because God just willy-nilly said, y'all can go free. We are forgiven because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin, and God then justly can forgive sin. Jesus poured out his blood for you, the new covenant. That's why it is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing. The blessing of salvation. Jesus' death inaugurated the new covenant. It brought it into being. The old covenant, you can go back, if you will, to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the 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 covenant of law, which included blood of bulls and goats, could not take away sins. Hebrews 10.4 tells us. It could not therefore save sinners. Indeed, it was never intended to say, do so by God. The old covenant could not save you. you let me give you an illustration. Let me ask you, have you ever told a lie? You just blew it. Have you ever coveted your neighbor's whatever? Maybe their computer or their iPhone or you desire to have it is theirs. Well, you just broke the Ten Commandment. And the old covenant couldn't save you because of the weakness of the flesh. Our sinful, it couldn't save. It wasn't intended to save. In fact, what it did, it showed us our sin. It showed us how far we have fallen and what we do in rebellion against God. It could not send the old covenant. God had to give us a new one. That's what the new covenant is. In fact, the new covenant, of all the covenants in the Bible, the new covenant is the only saving covenant. It's the only one designed and given by God to save us. And at the center of this covenant is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose blood was shed in order to uh, inaugurate and ratify this covenant so all who would believe can be saved. All those who've lied, all those who've been covetous, all those who've stolen, all those who've committed sexual immorality, all those who love somebody other than God is first, all those who violate the Ten Commandments. All of those people can now be saved because of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 was put into effect. It was fulfilled. God sealed his agreement of salvation with his people through Christ's blood. It's the blood. It's the blood. Um, It's the blood. People say Christianity is a bloody religion. I don't care if they want to deride it. They want to speak in a derogatory manner about our faith. So be it. I thank God for the blood. I thank him for his blood. We bless him for his blood. His blood signifying he gave up his life for us. Indeed. Now we're to do this. Jesus reiterates at the bottom of verse 25 in remembrance of him. In verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of his saving death. It's no ordinary meal. There are two perspectives here. We, the first one is, is 
a retrospective one. We look back on his um, saving substitutionary sacrifice. There is also a prospective perspective. We look forward to his second coming. The church is to engage in the Lord's table until Jesus comes. And when Jesus returns, he will celebrate the Passover in the millennial kingdom. Luke chapter 22, verse 16, he says, He will not eat of the fruit of the vine again with you until I do it in the kingdom of God. Jesus is going in a future point after he returns. He's going to establish his millennial kingdom, and he is going to eat the fruit of the vine, drink the fruit of the vine, and celebrate Passover with his people. When he comes back. The implication is he's raised from the dead. <laughs> we know that, don't we? But the Passover will not look back to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt when our Lord celebrates it again in the kingdom of God. In fact, it's going to look back to the cross. Why is that? Because the cross is a greater deliverance than the Egyptian exodus, Israel's exodus from Egypt. Why is that? For in the Exodus, Israel's delivered merely from physical bondage from an earthly power. But what Jesus did for us on the cross was deliverance from the powers of sin, death, and hell. That's a trifecta in which Jesus delivered us from, right? Delivers from the power of sin. In all its manifestations, from its penalty, from its power, and from its eternal condemnation and death, and eternal damnation, separation from him and in the lake of fire. Jesus delivered us. So when the Lord, we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming his death. That's an extraordinary event. For all the things that we've already talked about, it's an extraordinary event. It was not an ordinary happening historically. It was an extraordinary event with profound significance eternally for every single human on the planet. There's no event equal to it. Thus, the Lord's Supper is no, shall we say it? Oh, y'all are getting it. Oh, y'all are getting it. Good, no ordinary meal. That's, that's the reality because it commemorates an extraordinary event. Next point. The meal is cause for spiritual self-examination. Put on your seatbelt. Buckle up. We, um, this, this meal, which is an ordinary meal, says here, Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul now, with this word, therefore, he applies what he's just written. He is telling us there is peril. There is potential danger in eating and drinking in an unworthy manner the Lord's supper. In fact, some in Corinth had done that. You, you can recall that back in verses 17 through 22, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was addressing them, and he said, you really don't meet to, together. It's not to eat the Lord's Supper because they mocked it by their behavior. 
And so he is applying corrective. He, he wants to tell us well, the danger inherent in taking this meal, which is not an ordinary one, can entail for a person who approaches it in an unworthy manner. You see what he says here, the potential. Those who eat and drink unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. How can you eat unworthily? Perhaps you have some bitterness in your heart. Maybe you're bitter towards someone, someone in your family. Perhaps it's your spouse, your children, church member. Uh, you can come unworthily. Uh, you can treat the table in a mechanical way. Just, I'm going to eat that whatever that thing is and drink whatever that, oh, that grape juice. And your mind's everywhere else but on the Lord. That, that's an unworthy way of doing it. You can just go through the motions. Oh, it's the Lord's Supper. You know, it's just one of those rituals we do in the church, and I'm going to participate, so I eat and drink, but that's it. You don't do that. Don't want to drink like that. You've got to remember who, what you're doing and who you're with. You don't want to dishonor the Lord, his body and blood, by treating him indifferently. And that can happen to believers. We could almost allow the world and our problems to calcify our hearts toward the Lord, and we can treat him indifferently, even when it comes to a sacred moment like eating that which represents his sacrifice for our soul's salvation. Don't do that. This word guilty is a judicial term, meaning to be liable or answerable to God the judge. Yes, yes, yes. As you're liable. You see, the Lord is the unseen observer. He sees everything. He, he sees the behavior. He knows all of that. You don't escape from him. You know, I think we don't think about the omnipresence of the Lord enough, <laughs> do we? We forget. We think because we can't physically see him, well, he must not be able to see. Oh, yes, he sees. He not only sees our outward behavior, but... He uniquely sees our inner dispositions, uh, disposition of the mind and the heart. He knows what's going on inside, inside us. Hmm. But what do you do? What do you do? You, you want to obey Jesus' command. You want to take the Lord's table, but you don't want to be guilty or answerable to the Lord by taking an unworthy manner. So what do you do? Verse 28 tells us you examine yourself. Self-examination is required. And the Greek word there for examine is dakamazo, and dakamazo is a meaning to put to the test. It's like testing precious metals for impurities. Each believer, each one of us, has the responsibility before the Lord to put ourselves to the test for spiritual impurities before we receive the Lord's uh, representation of his body and blood. We must evaluate ourselves. This is a time of personal um, purification. Personally and then also for the church. We come and we, we get things right. We find when there are impurities there, we do that. How are we to examine ourselves, you may ask. It's a good question. We want to check to see if there are any, there are any unconfessed sins in our life. Are there any wrong attitudes toward the Lord? 
his word and his ways. Are there any wrong attitudes toward anyone in the body of Christ? I wanted to pause and let you think about that for a moment. Somebody just pop up in your mind? An attitude just, it just came to. You have an attitude toward the Lord because he doesn't seem to do it the way you want it done. You want to examine yourself. To fail to examine and come clean puts one in jeopardy. Yes, it does. Verse 29. For he eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. To judge oneself. The judgment here does not refer to eternal damnation. I'm, I'm happy to announce that. <laughs> talking about that. Romans 8.1 says this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation used in that text from Romans 8 verse 1 is katakrima. Katakrima is a term used for eternal damnation. And the same term katakrima, translated condemned, is utilized in verse 32, the bottom of the verse here in 1 Corinthians 11.32. Katakrima. And it refers to the unsaved who are des described as the world. But the term utilized in verse 29 for judgment is krima. The prefix kata is not before it. And it has a sense of discipline or chastening. If we do not judge the body rightly, that is, if we don't recognize personal holiness is required because it's not an ordinary meal, then we will experience judgment. You say, how do you know, Paul? Here he gives his example because it was already going on in Corinth, verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Some in Corinth had failed to examine themselves with respect to sin. They had come unworthily to the table of the Lord. They had taken the elements and they continued in their selfishness and their self-orientation and all the rest. And the Lord had to deal with them weak and sick. Severe illness occurred. And some, a number, a sufficient number, sleep. He's not taking, talking about taking a siesta. Sleep here is a euphemism for death. Our English word cemetery is from the Greek noun translated here as sleep. The word cemetery literally means the sleeping place. Some of the Corinthians were put to death by the Lord for their continual sin at the Lord's table. This is no ordinary meal. Boy, you could be in jeopardy. Some people are so bodacious, they think, I ain't nothing. God's going to forgive me. Well, you won't go to hell, but I tell you what, I'm not interested in severe sickness, and I don't want to go home to heaven prematurely. 
So it's no ordinary meal. Well, what can I do? We've already alluded to it. Now we'll talk further. But if we, verse 31, judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. The way to avoid discipline is to judge oneself. John Phillips, commentator, tells the story that Alan Redpath told some years ago about two boys who were left at home one night while their parents went to a church service. The boys promised to be good. <laughs> uh -huh. Some of you parents can already yeah, well. You know. When the parents arrived back at home, they called the boys, but there was no answer. They checked the living room, and there on the table was a pile of broken pieces and a note. The note read, Dear Mom and Dad, we broke your vase. We are very sorry. We have put ourselves to bed without any supper. <laughs> Parents said, oh, I should be so fortunate. Jimmy and Joe. Phillips then queries, what do you think the father did? Do you think he rushed to their rooms and hauled them out of bed and gave them a spanking for breaking the vase? No, indeed. They had judged themselves. And judgment was disarmed. The same with us. Judge ourselves. Say, Father, this is wrong, what I did. Lord, that attitude was wrong. If we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. But sometimes we are judged. This is a failure to do what the two boys did. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That word discipline there, uh, to train a child through discipline, a loving God corrects his children. Uh, no scourging seems pleasant for the time, Hebrews says. We don't like having to go to the, you bet. Uh, proverbial woodshed. But you know, that's an indication you belong to the Father. He's, he wants you to partake of his holiness. He, he wants to produce that character in you, righteousness. He does not permit us to remain in our unholiness. He's a good father. He's a good parent. No more you want your children to be disobedient and all the problems that will come in their life if they don't follow your leadership and what's right for their good. Our Heavenly Father, who is a perfect one, wants us to be holy. And he'll discipline us. Why does he do it? These significant words are in the rest of the verse. So that we will not be condemned along with the world. Oh, what, 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 what? Uh, not be condemned with the rest of the world. Now, those are some scary words. Thank you, Lord. 
You mean there's a potential we could be condemned with the world? Well, it would be if, if, two things. One, we won't be because God has decreed that we won't be. We're eternally secure. But there's another reason. God's going to intervene to make sure. Isn't that good? He's decreed he's going to intervene to make sure. <laughs> we thank him for that. Now, we see that this is no ordinary meal. This means then you have to prepare your heart. Prepare your heart for taking the Lord's Supper. It's the right response to the truth of the Lord's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. As we're bowed here at this moment, may every heart examine itself. That it may come clean before you where there is impurity, where there is sin, where there is failure. That we may take this supper, commune with you, with cleansed hearts. These things I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.